I'm Fabian. I'm Court. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Fabian, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, hi, I'm Fabian. I write code and stuff, and I would like to plug the music videos of Max Cooper, this like an electronic musician that has a bunch of like really a lot of really cool, really fascinating music videos that I can very much recommend if you're not aware of them. Great. Yeah, it's too bad uh, you weren't on the show a few months ago, back when we were doing music videos instead of poems. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Court, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I am Court. Uh, I also write code and stuff, uh, and I would like to plug uh, styptic pencils. Uh, if you habitually scrape a blade across your skin to remove unwanted hair, you need one of these things. They they close up tiny little nicks and cuts in like seconds. Uh, you will you will never spend ten minutes like dabbing yourself with tissue paper ever again. That does sound useful. You, you described it so abstractly that I thought this was like a nervous habit that you had. <laughs> well, you know. I, I I didn't want to pigeonhole them. You know, they 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 they're they're useful for in a wide variety of contexts. <laughs> yeah. Any any time a blade scrapes across your skin, you might need this stuff. I mean, like it happens to us every day, right? Some of us. We're <laughs> ready to start on some topics. Let Let's do it. Court, your topic is Black Square Day. Yeah. All right. So we are recording this on February twenty fourth. If that's not too much of a glimpse behind the curtain. Um, my wife and I have a recurring annual notification on our calendars on February 25th called Black Square Day. Uh, neither of us have any idea what it refers to. Uh, here's what we do know. Um, I'm the one who added it. I don't remember adding it, but, but Google says I did. The first occurrence of it was in 2015. The description is totally blank. Uh, if we search our email archives, our text messages to each other, the only references to Black Square Day that we can find are from ourselves to each other, wondering what Black Square Day is again, or, or, or joking about it. Like, oh, is it Black Square Day already? I'm so sorry, I, I didn't get you a card. Uh, and at this point, it's, it's sort of become this, this semi-mythical throwaway family joke holiday. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear that the actual origin is lost to the sands of time. Uh, and so one possible course of action would be to just delete it and get on with our lives. But I was kind of thinking like, we, we could lean into this. Um, uh, Jim, you and, and the Lord's have previously covered the topic of inventing secular rituals for children That's right. uh, raised outside of a well-established religion. Um, and I was thinking like, maybe this is my chance. Um, but, but now I'm faced with a blank canvas. I have nothing to work with. And that's pretty intimidating. So I was, I was kind of wondering like, well, what does black square day mean to you, to, to, to your, to your families? Like, is, is it a time of celebration? Before we get to us, I feel like the, the scenario that has to occur now is that in like 10 years, black square day is going to save one or both of your lives or your marriage. And then it's going to be a time loop situation where you need to time travel back to 2015. And the future version of you is the one who logged into your account and added Black Square Day to your calendar. Exactly. It's like a stable time loop because if that's not in your calendar, something terrible happens. Right. Oh, man, I love it. I love maybe it. it's also like maybe it's a location. Like Black Square is just a location that currently is meaningless to you. But like, mm. and like, say like three years, five years, whatever, you move somewhere and suddenly you're next to Black Square. It's like, oh, oh, this is what's going on. The plot thickens. Oh, and it's, it's, it's my subtle hint to myself that I need to be there on this day in order to, to, to do something critically important. For example, yeah. Oh, I like this. I like this a lot. Okay. Okay. All right. It could also just be just like, yeah, that's the day you make a Black Square and like you, you get to decide how big that Black Square is. I mean, you could just mm -hmm. like take a bit of 
like grid paper and just whatever take your like pen and just like fill in a small square but like it could be a really mm-hmm. big square maybe the square gets bigger every year maybe it escalates over time at one point i attended a party where the theme of the party was that you had to bring a palindrome and everybody had to come up with some creative interpretation of that theme I think this is a, a very promising idea for uh, for Black Square Day. Once we can have parties again, is that you can mm. invite all your friends over for Black Square Day, but they have to bring a black square. Uh, oh, that's good. Just or just say them like it's Black Square Day, and like I mean, just tell them that like, you know what that means. And of course, they don't know yes. what that means, and you just turn it yeah. into a standard where like you're not going to explain because everybody knows what Black Square Day is. Exactly. Like so, just like you just say dress appropriately. <laughs> and then you're gonna find out what Black Square Day is about. This is this is exactly what I was hoping for. I I, I really hope in, in in the long term, I, I I want this to become just like I can justify whatever ridiculous thing I want. I will say like, we, we we're doing this ridiculous thing this today because it's what we've always done on this hallowed day. And and if I keep saying that long enough, it becomes true, right? Just just like every other holiday. Yeah, yeah. Anything that happens twice is tradition. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially like a lot of these things, like even like public holidays. It's like okay, like. Something cool happened one year, and people are like, this calls for a celebration. And then it's that same time of year again, and people are like, well, I'd like to celebrate something. We didn't really have anything today. But there was a thing last year around this time. That's how that goes, right? So you can just, maybe you can also just make this happen by just have like a black square, like you force it by having a black square related occurrence once. And then you have grounds to celebrate for the rest of your life. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I mean, I mean they, they, it puts me a bit of pressure on me to come up with something pretty cool for tomorrow on very short notice. Um, but I, I think I'm up to that challenge. Well, either that or just you play you play cool this year, but like you mm-hmm. really have a year and a day, which is like a good it's amount of time. A little, okay. It's just a very poetic amount of time to be spending on something a year and a day. A year and a day, yeah. Yeah. You just have to really burn the casserole. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah, I, I love the idea of, of traditional garments that must be worn. Um, I feel like black armbands is probably a bit on the nose and and liable to be misinterpreted. Yeah, but, that's like that's that could uh, be taken in the wrong way in a myriad of situations. I, mean, I could probably have some T-shirts printed up if nothing. I can make this happen. <laughs> um, and, and I'd love for, like if someday there were there were there were traditional Black Square Day music that we listen to. I don't know. Maybe we go door to door Black Square Day caroling. That black Black Squareling. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's a gift-giving holiday. Uh, is it more of a hallmark holiday where you like you know you're supposed to you're supposed to celebrate it, but or it's just a day of quiet reflection. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, you you can meet with friends, but like it's just like it's not like a like big party kind of thing. It's like you gather with friends like in remembrance of something. Yeah, the the the, 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 the original question I had for myself like is is this is this a, in Judeo-Christian terms is this a New Testament holiday or an Old Testament holiday? Hmm. Like, are are we having a party or are we like somberly reflecting on? Hmm. On, on the true meaning. It's like, this is just a way that your community organizes itself. Yeah, like, yeah. This yeah. is just a day that we gather to just, like, absorb the spirit of next square day. Like, it's when we gather and just to be together. It's important not to overthink it, right? Like, yeah. it, it, it's really become very commercial lately. And, and let, let's, just, let's just bring it back to its roots. Exactly. And, like, we also, like, this shouldn't be turning into a competition, right? Just, like... Oh, sure, oh, sure. Oh, sure. Like, because once it's something where, like, everybody, like, very performatively tries to, like, be their most black oh, square yeah. self. I mean, that's just—it's yeah. too much, right? It's it just—it's it's, it's not about whose house has the most uh, the most black squares on it, or, or anything. <laughs> so, for the listeners, it's already like a month past when this <laughs> holiday occurred, 
and they're going to be dying to know how well it how it went. I'll make up something. Make up the outcome so that they'll be satisfied by the answer. Oh, you mean now? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm definitely going to be uh, sending my kids to school with something uh, special in their lunchboxes. And I think they're going to open it up and it'll really, it'll, it'll rekindle this warm nostalgia in their hearts for the black squares of their youth. And, and I think they'll share it with their, with their uh, classmates and hopefully it'll just go from there. Uh, I, th- I think, uh, I think they, they have the spirit to, to get this thing going. Yeah. That sounds good. It, it was slash will be wonderful. A really special time. Yep. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Bring it. Fabian, your topic is nostalgia for old computers isn't because they were good, but because they sucked in ways that were simple to understand. Yes. So the thesis here is like you have a lot of people like, oh, like new computers suck because like everything is so complicated and nothing works. And like, to be fair, like it is true that like everything is buggy and kind of broken and so on. But at the same time, honestly, like I've been doing this whole like computers and programming thing going on 30 years now. And I honestly can't remember a time in my life when stuff wasn't buggy and broken all the time. Uh-huh. It was just like, it's just you had such a different bar of what even your expectations were. So, for example, if you have 80s like home computer, like say a C64 or something, C64 is a nice example. Because um, if you boot that thing up, you're in a basic interpreter, which is this really crufty old programming language that if you didn't grow up with 80s home computers, you probably like, never saw in its pure form but that's what (laughs) they all used so like this thing like didn't boot into like some sort of graphical user interface or anything it didn't have stuff you could click on you just had to type in commands and like even just to load like a game or like do anything with that machine you just always had to essentially write a very short basic program usually just one line to load in the thing that actually did what you wanted and one thing, like, I viscerally recall uh, that even at the time was kind of confusing to me is that, especially on a C64, the way it works is that you have this screen, which is, of course, like, this is the 80s, so everything is low resolution and the pixels are enormous. So it's like a 40 by 25 grid of, like, very, very pixely characters, say, by pixels each. Mm-hmm. That's your entire screen. So it's like exactly a thousand cells. And they each contain letters and so on. And the way it works on a C64 is you enter a line of text. And as you're typing, like the stuff you're typing in, like the individual characters basically get translated very directly from like the thing you type just gets written somewhere in memory. And that's directly what's displayed. And if you go somewhere on the screen, like you can move the cursor around and just hit return. And the computer doesn't know or care that like, there is no such concept as like a text editor or like a text input control or anything. The rules on the C64 are pretty much you place your cursor for text input somewhere and you hit return. And then the computer figures out what the start of that line is and assumes that at the start of whatever line it is, even if it's the line that's like Commodore 64 basic version, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like it just thinks like that's got to be the command and it tries to execute that and of course if you go to the thing where it's like the commodore 64 basic it's just like that's not a valid basic command and get a syntax error but it's this very weird thing yeah it could do this thing where you would you would type list and it would show you the existing basic program that was in memory and you could edit one of the lines in place and hit enter yep and somehow it would know where that line like i guess stored somewhere it's 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 trickier than that because the way that works with the basic lines is 
literally like everything you enter starts with a line number, right? And right. if you do the list, it just puts the number in front. Right. So it just knows that everything on the screen that starts with a number, it's just, that's got to be the line number and that's where it puts it. Did it make sure not to word wrap it such that if there was a number in the middle of the line, it never began it, it never wrapped that to the beginning of the line? I believe there was something to do where it was aware of if you had typed a long line, it was word wrapping it, like it wouldn't know where to start. But I think, I don't remember details, but like there was a way to break it just by moving the cursor around. Where like okay. if you were just entering a line and just like backspacing to fix typos, it was fine. But if you started moving the cursor around to those line edit things, like you would actually need to move your cursor, I believe, to the start of where you started entering things for it to know that's what it was. Okay. And the other thing is like you just like have this thing, like as I said, you can enter basic programs and it's like you think of this like from today's vantage, like you think of it as like a text editor. But that's not what happens. Because this thing, it's like, it's got, this computer is like, it's got 64 kilobytes of memory, man. It's just like, it can't store all that text. We don't have that kind of memory. So what it really does is like, as you're entering this thing, like as long as the words are on the screen, they're in a human readable format. As soon as you press enter, it just goes like, oh, like this 10 here is a line number. So I'm not going to store that as like two characters that are one and zero and then a space. It's just like, that gets turned into two bytes for a line number. And then whatever, it says print hello world. And then so the instant you press return, the computer goes like, okay, print is just a keyword. So let me instantly tell you, like, I'm not going to store like the five characters for P-R-I-N-T at there. It's just like, I know this is print. So I'm going to turn this into like a byte value that says this is a print. And then the quotation marks, we don't need those. We can just get rid of those and just store what the string is. And then directly after that, it's the hello so like everything there is just so immediate. Your, your argument here is 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 not that like that not that this wasn't a total garbage fire of usability and and functionality, but that it, a reasonable person could could figure out what it was doing and and presumably exploit it in interesting ways to to do magical things with this machine. So I'm simultaneously trying to explain how much of a usability garbage fire it was and how like like it's this weird mix of like oh, there's this text on the screen. And like, I mean, just imagine the equivalent on a current computer where you have a browser window and you can basically just paste pixels around, right? And the instant you hit return, the computer goes and like OCRs the text on the screen to figure out what it is you want. <laughs> and you can just move things around with MS Paint and hit return. And then it does whatever it says if it's a font it recognizes. I mean, like all of that is crazy. But that's sort of like how these computers actually work because like, this is like there was just one font and it's already in a form that's easy to see and it's like in screen memory in a form that is reasonably easy to understand so it's just like there's nothing in between you and the machine and like the resulting user interface is really horrible and has all these warts but at the same time it's just like all the processing it ends up doing with that is so simple because these machines are tiny, like there's not much space for code in there. They don't have RAM. The CPUs are slow. It's like everything about these is so low tech that there isn't a way for it to behave in a very complicated way. And I think a lot of the nostalgia about it is like, oh, not everything was better at the time because like I said, everything I'm describing here usability-wise is horrible, right? It does these things and you just... The way that line editing works has these super arcane rules that you learn over time. But like the only reason people learned how that stuff operated was because they had to, because that's how the computer worked. 
And then they got this weird Stockholm Syndrome fondness for like, oh, everything was so simple back then because, yeah, like it just had to just work in this way. So I was going to say, I, 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 you, you have me at a disadvantage here because I, I, I never uh, have, I, I, I do not personally have a C64. My, my first computer mm -hmm. was, it was an Apple product, I'm ashamed to say. Um, so I, I'm curious, though, like, is, is there some level of, uh, of like survivorship bias going on here where like people were bouncing off these machines for sure at the time because they were like, you turn it on and you're greedy with a basic prompt and what the yep. hell does that even mean? But, but like the people who, who, who did make it past that hump by necessity were the ones who would appreciate the, you know, the, the, the resulting delightful fun okay i think that's definitely a factor and i said the other thing is like yeah everything was so simple back then it's like yeah it had to be and just we just accepted all the ways that made it suck yeah but like the ways they sucked it's like today if a computer does like we've like on this call like while we're setting this up we're running into some weird audio issues here where we discovered that quartz recording is fine and hopefully it'll be fine in the podcast. But like yeah. we're hearing some weird time stretch stuff. We're just like, okay, we can try to debug this, but like all of us like immediately get like, or we cannot because it's good enough to record and like this will like take us forever to figure out and nobody knows what's right. going on. It'll right. just be a thing of like toggle this switch, maybe install new drivers, maybe do this, and it'll take an hour and we'll give up at some point and we just accept the end of the just we accept the suck on our end because it's good enough to record. Yeah. I, I literally sunk an hour and a half this afternoon into installing new audio drivers and figuring out what, what subsequently broke in, in, in the name of fixing audacity and could I live with it? And yes. Yeah. And so like, that's just the way that always goes now. And it's like, I think a lot of the nostalgia for these old computers, I said like the usability of that, like objectively also really sucked, but like it sucked in a way as, as the topic said that he could understand. Right. They were small enough and simple enough. A human mind could like understand what was going on with the computer. And if anything went wrong with it, you could probably fix it yourself, which is so not the case with a modern computer. Yeah. Like no single human can possibly understand the whole thing. I remember a former colleague of mine, like my old boss, games programmer. And he said like uh, he grew up with the early 8-bit machines and C64, then did a lot on Amiga. In his estimation, like he said, like the PlayStation 2 was the last computer he felt like he understood. Sure. Like mm -hmm. as in like I know like pretty much everything that's in this thing. And I actually like have a fairly detailed understanding of what's going on in this machine at any given time. Like everything since that, we're now at a point where pretty sure that nobody knows. Like certainly like professionally we're dealing with the friction of that all the time we're just like even a single component at this point your graphics card is vastly more complex than any one person or like even any team of 10 people even at the company that's making the thing can understand whereas yeah. the c64 asset it super sucks like in a lot of ways it's also like it, like not like, i'm not saying it's a bad design like all the stuff is like this is like engineering decisions on like this has to work with very little resources and it has to be cheap and so on it's like it's not that it doesn't make sense but like it does suck and like all the suck is like yeah like there is no separate buffer that you type in and the input commands go right they go right on the screen and so it reads whatever it does from the screen so the way you edit things on this thing is you just can just move your cursor anywhere on the screen and put a character there and that's how you do line editing, which is super weird thing to think about from today's vantage. Like I said, it's like taking a screenshot of a browser window 
and just like going with paint and like drawing something over it, like importing that back into the browser and that's how you edit text. That's just so absurd to think about, but that's sort of how that actually works. And it's kind of charming in a way. It, it, it hits you with code as data on like, you know, day one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th that's like set colleague said, like C64 is probably one of the best machines to just get, like truly get like on a deep level, like, oh, everything turns into numbers in the end. Everything in this machine ultimately gets boiled down to these numbers between 0 and 255 because it's an 8-bit CPU. This is all it can do. And especially 6502 is really so simple. Like, it really can't do much more than that at all. Like, there's no, there's no sophistication there. It's very direct. Like, it does these very basic things. Math-wise, it can add and subtract. You want to multiply? Well, you gotta have to write <laughs> whoa, or like whoa. this thing that multiplies. Like that's not something this machine can do. That's something you'll have to write a program for. <laughs> oh, you've got you've got floating point uh, code in the ROM though. Yes, yes. But like, I mean, that's the thing. Like, uh, like a substantial amount, like of the I think eight kilobyte or so of basic ROM. It's just like, yeah, we're gonna have to teach this thing to do like all the stuff that your calculator can do, right? Because yeah. it can't even do that internally. Which at the time is normal. And like calculators also did this with software and very simple CPUs. But like these days, if you're like on a mobile phone and so on, like no, 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 like the, like everything in that machine, there's like, there's like probably four or five CPU cores you know about and like three that you don't that are also there <laughs> that all can do like sophisticated vector math and so on just as a matter of course. It's just kind of weird to think about. It's interesting to hear your boss's statement that like that he thought that the, 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 the PS2 was the, was the last machine that 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 felt this way because where my mind went immediately didn't have that level of experience but uh but but the, the PS3 is what is what I felt about there but 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 I know that that's because I got to spend all of my time on the on the SPU which was extremely simple and like could be fully described in a, a, like a two or three pages of text and you know its instructions you know exactly how it behaves and I feel like one's one's nostalgia for this platform is directly proportional to how much code you got to write for for that extremely simple extremely predictable coprocessor and inversely proportional to how much time you had to spend dealing with any of the rest of it where, where it was right back to modern garbage fire territory. especially like the ps3 was the machine that prompted that statement from him because it's like, mm. like he's like i understand parts of this thing right the sp was at least like i get the spus like that's a simple enough thing to fit in my head but like so on the playstation 2 i'm trying to parse in my head if this is secret stuff that I'm still supposed to be under NDA about, but it's not. They posted presentations about this and everything. So, like, for the PlayStation 2, like, if you did a console game, there is this really weird thing where if you're doing any kinds of games, there's just tooling there for game developers, right? That you use these tools, like, to check what's going to debug problems, to just do, like, all kinds of graphics performance optimization. There's all these tools, right, today. These are all like very like sophisticated things that know about shaders and that have all this debug functionality and so on. In the PS2, this didn't really exist. The PS2 had a special version of the hardware called the performance analyzer. Like when he first used this, this was not something you could buy. This was an installation at the time because we're in Europe. This was at SEE, so Sony Computer Entertainment Europe in London is a room where they had, like, a PS2 with, like, a bunch of taps, like, on the main system bus, wired up to a high-end logic analyzer. 
And they're just like, okay, this system bus is 133 megahertz, and we can just capture like every signal that goes over there and like all the memory accesses and so on that happen in this machine. We can just capture in real time for like whatever, two frames or so. And we just grab these couple hundred megabytes of data, which seemed a lot at the time. Uh, it's not like these days, 100 megabytes is not much, but at the time it was. Um, and you captured like a couple hundred megabytes of data for like a couple frames. And then you saw like, because it knew like everything, like that every component had like was talking to everything else over that bus. So just from the full capture of that system bus, you could reconstruct a pretty accurate image of what this thing was doing at any given point because you could see, oh, here's the CPU fetching like an instruction cache line. Oh, here's the GPU like trying to sample a texture and you could do it like it's in a very regular cycle. Here's like a texture transfer. Here's like whatever it rendering to RAM. It's just a very, very funky thing. And so like used to be like something that was just esoteric hardware at the time. Then they later did a special version of that, like a tool PS2 that you could get that had this functionality built in. But that was still a machine, uh, probably the last of its kind, where they just had like, no, we just have like a bunch of wires. That's the system bus, right? That basically everything of interest in this machine eventually goes through. And we can just hook up something that dumps everything that goes through there and like literally writes it to memory and then to a file. And we just take that dump and that's enough to reconstruct basically everything that was going on in the machine for that entire interval, which is not something we've been able to do for like any machine for like quite a while. I, I feel like we're getting pretty deep in the weeds here. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> should, should we swim back up for air? It's just like, yeah, I like to geek out about this stuff. And like, it's, you, you know I do too. I mean, sorry, like this is just a thing here with the combination of people we have. But it's just, yeah, it's just weird. Like, again, like these machines couldn't do nearly as much as what today's machines can do. So they were simple so people could actually fully understand them. And I think that's where that whole thing comes from. Yeah. Uh, the, the last question I have here is uh, to get back to the original topic of, yes. of nostalgia for old computers. Um, do, like nostalgia is a weird thing, right? Yes. Do, do you think do you do you think that like someday there will be this nostalgia and fetishization of like a mid twenty tens tower PC the way that we currently like fetishize Amigas and and common? I feel like I'm already there. That's already there. I think like, the whole vaporwave thing is that right. Like the whole vaporwave aesthetic of like, oh, we're now like remixing like Windows startup sounds from Windows 95 and the whole like Brian Eno startup sound thing. That's already a thing. And it's just like as we're getting like further in, like there's probably going to be more of that. I mean, like already like that uh, Vista background image with the weird like super saturated green hills is kind of a meme by itself now that people are nostalgic for. It, it, it's a safe bet for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, like the thing I'm kind of wondering about is um, we we're like now probably something like 15 years to like this whole retro thing where everything is super blocky pixels and so on. Like people are like doing like, like, which is not how these pixels actually looked on CRTs. I mean, but they did look like that in emulation in the 90s. Exactly. So it's like, <laughs> we're already there where it's like, okay. Like, second wave retro. I rem like I'm old enough to have spent a lot of my childhood sitting in front of an actual CRT and like getting irradiated probably because that's how these things work. Then the whole retro thing and I look at this like these super sharp boxing pick that's not how that looked and it's not how it felt but like that's how the emulator people remember it. And like I'm wondering what the version of that for like I guess like games from like 10 years ago will be because at this point we're like 10, 20 years ago, even, we're still firmly into, like, the everything is 3 era. 
And like we have a lot of like pixel retro aesthetic. I'm not seeing much of like honestly nobody seems to be nostalgic about like PlayStation One era graphics of like everything is unfiltered and like has weird perspective warping. Well, first of all, it was awful. Yeah. Like early three D <laughs> was like uniformly terrible. Like yeah. up until like I would say up until like the the Xbox three sixty generation, it was just unacceptable. Um, but I actually have seen a lot of nostalgia for PlayStation era low poly stuff. But that's yeah. the thing. Like you look at this, uh, I guess it's a similar thing to the pixel art thing. Where like I look at this and like you're just like this is fake pixel art. This is like garbage because I look at this like yeah you're using like whatever thirty two by thirty two pixels. That's way too many pixels. You could do maybe twenty four by sixteen in my day, <laughs> and like you're using like like each of these has a unique color. Like you're getting. Four Carlos per eight by eight block. That's all you get. Maybe the equivalent in the future will be like low poly models, but with like dual quaternion skinning and and like or just low poly models, but like like the textures are actually like properly like snapped to the thing. Whereas <laughs> right. on a PlayStation One, it's just like no perspective correction, right? So like everything is warping all the time. It's just like it's really bad if you look at it now, or like something like um I think the original Ultima Underworld also has this like. Like Ultima Underworld was one of the first really 3D games that let you move the camera arbitrarily, but like it has this super warpy texture mapper where you can just tell like all the walls seem to be swimming all the time because it's just like it doesn't do like anything. It doesn't do a perspective right, so it just feels very weird. I don't think anybody's really nostalgic for that. They're maybe doing the low poly thing, but they're not doing the jank that comes with it. Maybe that's the artifact people will latch onto and and want and wants to to recreate. I guess you know meticulously. Yeah, there could be there could just be like a, a fifteen year nostalgia gap where no one wants to remember that period. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly like the PlayStation generation is a bit weird since it was like this whole like PlayStation One since it was this bridge between like you no know, console games are two D to console games are three D and like PlayStation had a fairly even mix right and also like games like. Something like Castlevania Symphony of the Night is on PlayStation, and it has some weird like 3D graphic stuff in it for the spell effects, but it is firmly a 2D game. And then some games were like actually like 3D and had like 3D character controls, and that was the generation where you had a bit of both. And what I'm seeing of nostalgia is more for the 2D part of it that actually even at the time just felt like it was like tight and felt solid. And the 3D stuff was something you could do that maybe racing games did do, but it was kind of not good yet are we ready for another topic absolutely this has been taking way too long i apologize <laughs> that's that's good that's the, the, thank you that's when you tell you can tell a topic has legs is when you have to cut it off <laughs> uh my topic is the dirty wave m8 tracker mm-hmm. this is a piece of hardware that i purchased about a month ago uh and it is a a hardware tracker meaning it's a dedicated piece of hardware that is just for running the tracker software on and making music with it's it's based on little sound dj for the game boy <laughs> a, a tracker that ran on the game boy and it used the d-pad and the a and b buttons and the start and select buttons as the interface and i have never used lsdj however i um having played with this thing for a few hours it's incredibly elegant like just the mapping of the interface onto and and the m8 has uh it doesn't use a, have a D-pad on it, but it basically has four arrow keys and then four additional buttons for the additional functions. Uh, and it's a very nice interface if you are limited to 
a D-pad and four buttons. It's like really, really slick. Pardon my clicking while while I type and go look this thing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at some look at some pictures. I I think I remember you tweeting about it. So yeah, okay, yeah. This thing. I'm pretty sure I've seen this used. Yeah. So like, what I'm wondering right now, so like, why I'm looking at this and I can't find the information right now. I am certain I have seen this used live. I think I know one of the people who worked on this. Oh, cool. But I'm not sure. Uh, like for the original Game Boy one, not the Dirty Wave I made. Like the Dirty Wave I made, I don't know. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. So, do, do you have to recuse yourself from this topic as a as a conflict of interest? <laughs> you will. We would just have to. Uh, we would have to disguise your voice so that no one knows it's you. I, I got to say, I, I, I'm, I, 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 I was skeptical when I when I saw this thing. Like, I, I have used, I have used trackers. I've enjoyed trackers. Putting them behind an eight button interface feels like a bridge too far. Like, I, I'm not sure what that adds to the experience. So, so maybe you can, maybe you can enlighten me, Jim. I'm actually kind of right there with you. Like, I wish I had a, it had a keyboard on it. Uh, but also then it wouldn't fit in a Game Boy form factor, which is like the reason I got the thing was that so that I would, ha- I could, I could mess with it anywhere. It, it's, it's super, super portable. You could like make music on the toilet or on the bus. Mm-hmm. Jim, I make music on the toilet every single day. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody's as lucky as you. Not everybody had that whistle installed. <laughs> Uh, but I, I agree. Like, so you are, you're definitely like scrubbing through notes. You're, you're, you hold uh, a button down and like push up or down to move up or down an octave and left and right to move up or down a semitone. It's, it is awkward. You should probably like do a two paragraph explanation of what a tracker is for people who aren't familiar with it. Yes. Yeah. Who feels qualified to do so? <laughs> okay. So the idea with a tracker is like, it's like, it's sort of like a music composition tool, like crossed with a spreadsheet. It's yeah. sort of a way to think about it. So you have this tabular form with a bunch of columns, like one column per channel, that has this tabular layout and you can punch in like notes to play on certain instruments. And like there's various ways to do that. But it's like this very similar thing where like time goes down each, like horizontally, like each channel is a column and you can put into each table cell basically what note to play and maybe some extra information on how to play it, like how loud or something. But that's the basic idea, like a kind of tool to make electronic music that I think goes back originally to the Commodore Amiga. Yeah. Obviously, it's very good to make techno that has like very rigid timing. And that's what a lot of this was originally used for. But it's like a kind of like, it's a charming thing. It's like it has like, it's a very intuitive thing to play around with. It doesn't need like music theory to be able to use it. Doesn't have any fancy notation. You just basically push a button and go and play around with it. Yeah. Speaking as a musician who's played with a lot of different tools to facilitate like electronic music, like MIDI tools, for example, the advantage of the tracker over those tools is that it gives you very precise control over over the the way the note is played. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can do very specific vibrato or very specific pitch bends or like you can start a sample at a certain point in the sample. And and if you were to try to automate this stuff using a traditional MIDI sequencer, it would be a nightmare. Yeah. The other thing is also just that the timing is like very tight because it's like it's everything is on a grid, right? So um, yep. if you do like repetitive electronic music, it's perfect for that because like it's like it's right on the grid. It's like very – I used to write a player for these things and there's various things that musicians used to do. Because of the way these things work, like people would do weird stuff with them. Because like, okay, like you can do like a very basic like four to the floor, completely rigid rhythm with it, just fine. And then people was like, okay, like that's like not great for the kind of music you want to do. 
And like, I want to do like something that swung. And like you can do a swing. And it works by changing like literally like every two or three rows. You put in a command that's like change the playback speed slightly. And for yeah. the classic swing pattern, you go like, oh, you do two rows at this speed and then two rows at this other speed. And that gives you the swing pattern. Yep. So I, I, I definitely got my start in, in, in music with a tracker in the early 90s. And, and what, what I loved about it particularly was it, it was it was certainly rare at the time. I believe it's still rare that like it, it, if you have a program that that can play uh, tracker songs, I don't know what we call them, modules, tracks, whatever. Yep. Um, it, it is almost certainly also a tool that can create uh, this music and and it's like every song that I got it, it was like open source music like not only I, I listened to it for a while but then I couldn't help but just like start going and tinkering with like oh what if I what if what if I go click this cell instead what happens oh like this, this happens oh let, let me let me pull these samples out here and make my own tracks out of them and yeah it's incredible like every tracker mod like comes with all the samples used to create the music and also you can see all the notes right there you can really dig in and see exactly all the tricks that the the musician used yeah. to create that, yeah. those sounds. And usually as it's playing, like even like there are programs that aren't just editors that are just players, but even they will basically show you the sheet as it's scrolling by in this text yep. view. And it's one of these things where you look at this and like, wait, like I'm listening to this music and I'm clearly hearing like four different instruments right now, but it's only playing three channels. And I know there's another <laughs> voice coming in right now. And this thing only has four columns. What the hell? And you, you kind of got to go in and see how it's doing it. There's just a lot of craftiness in there. It's like one of the things, like there's a lot of things that people associate, like the classic chiptune sound, for example, uh, is that everything is arpeggios, right? Which is basically instead of playing a chord, you play the notes that make up the chord, like three notes, four notes, rapidly in sequence. And that's just like, yeah, to play an actual chord means to like play like three things like simultaneously. And ain't nobody got the channels for that. Like I on an Amiga, I have four channels total. I can't be wasting three of those on a single chord. So people did these arpeggios instead, which was just a way to work around the limitation. Like, oh, like, yeah, I only have four audio channels. And like, I want to have like, maybe bass i want to have a drum and then my melody voice is doing these chords and i don't have three channels left to do even like a basic chord so i have to do it this way and then that turned into like oh no that's that's a thing that's a style i like this so it's very it's i love it when you have these kind of technical limitations that then turn into a whole aesthetic because even though it arose out of this limitation it's actually like a very cool very unique sound yeah so uh, maybe you guys would know, like uh, one one thing I always wanted to do in my tracker days and never never actually got around to uh, was 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 make a song that had a second song hidden inside of it. <laughs> if you started on if you started from the first cell, you, it would like you know take you to to one set of tracks. But if you if you fast forwarded one cell, it would it would bounce you to some other whole set of patterns. Did, 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 is, is that a thing that people did? I don't think I ever saw someone like interleave two songs in the same module, but that's totally mm -hmm. doable. Yeah. I've seen that, but like not used to hide a song. So I come originally from like the demo scene. I used to make these PC demos and so on. Damn right you do. And so the thing that people did there, like eventually, like the thing you will see now for like demos, which is like these self-running animation things, is sort of like music videos except in real time. The thing you'll now is like the style of what used to be known way back in the day, way before my day even, as track modes where you have a music oh, yeah. track that you're synchronizing the demo to. But like old school demos are not like that. They're just like somebody did a cool song that somebody liked 
and they're like, oh, we want to put that in our demo. We just have, like, it's not synchronized to the music or anything. We're just doing something on the screen. And probably there's, there's always a scroller somewhere, a scroller somewhere just scrolling like kilobytes of boring text. And it just <laughs> runs forever while the music loops. Um, and like there was this thing where people like, okay, like we want to start synchronizing stuff to music. And then they started putting in these commands right in the module as it's playing. So like there's a mixture in the module of like things that control the music playing and like also like things that just control what the demo does at the same time. Because you already have this tabular thing that like lets you place events precisely and lets you like control like two or three values that it can pass through, and like you can just put that in one of the columns that you're not using currently, and it doesn't actually have to play a note, so it's fine. Like trackers have these things called effects that you can put next to the actual notes you're playing. You just take one of these that's unused, and then you can put other stuff in there. And the same way you would sometimes have modules. Um, where it's sort of a multiple choice thing, right? The thing the musician is doing just has like multiple ways this can go. Again, encoded using some of the unused commands and then the demo that's playing them at the same time. It's like sort of like you can think of it like with a railway, just like uh, with the tracks that you can change. Um, the railway switch, right? Where you can just set it in advance and like, oh, once this pattern loops, go either here or here. And people did tricks with that. Where like you could say like, oh, like if I press escape, It'll still uh, play the current pattern, which is like group of 64. Like it's a couple bars of music as a pattern. Um, it'll still play the current pattern to its end and then do the thing. And so like the whole music is kind of interwoven with the flow control of the demo. Like very fun stuff. Yeah, that's really neat. All right, so, so to, to come back to the to, to the to the dirty wave thing, like now that we've established that like a tracker is 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 a, is a is a is a is a musical spreadsheet. If if you came along to me and pitched like I have a portable device to let you edit spreadsheets, but it only has a trackball on it, like I I I my eyebrow would be raised for sure. <laughs> What's the value proposition here? So it it turns out that editing music with the d-pad isn't the deal breaker for me and in fact i don't know if there's a deal breaker or not i'm still messing with it so you know how in a traditional tracker like all the rows and columns are laid out like in one big sheet the uh the m8 is not like that the and in the m8 you're only ever working with 16 notes at a time so every pattern is one column and 16 rows on another screen you arrange those patterns into phrases you can have four patterns that uh, are all played in sequence, and that becomes your 64-row sequence of notes. And then you arrange phrases in a grid into into a song. So the downside of this is that if you want to hear two notes at the same time, like you're trying to test out a chord progression, for example, if you want to hear you know the whole chord at the same time, you need to edit your notes in the pattern screen and then go back to the song screen. You have to have already arranged all the oh, the no. phrases and the patterns together, and then you hit play on that uh, th- that row in the song, and then you can hear your chord progression. And that is the big pain for me. This thing is clearly intended for making techno mm-hmm. instead of like jazz, for example. Yes. <laughs> but on the flip side, what you get since there's only one row, uh, only one column of notes in the pattern, you get multiple effects columns so in a in a traditional tracker you get um there's the note column there's the instrument column there's the volume column and there's the effects column and the volume controls like the volume of the note that's currently being played the instrument controls usually it controls what sample is being played and then the effects is like everything else and there are 
dozens of these things that you can do to affect the sound. Um, and on the M8, there's probably a hundred different effects you can do because it, it allows for not just, uh, tracker things like vibrato and pitch bend, mm-hmm. uh, but it also allows you to automate all the synthesizers that are built into this thing. Like every, every <laughs> parameter of every synthesizer. Wow. So one of the demo songs in this thing, uh, it uses the FM synthesizer in the mode with four oscillator FM synthesizer, and, but it's just in the mode where all four oscillators are playing as audio. And it uses the effects columns to automate the pitches of the, the each of these oscillators so that they can play a four note chord in one channel mm-hmm. and a single, like within <laughs> that one pattern. So this is like a workaround for the problem I was describing. Mm. And that's, that shit's really cool. It's really, really cool what you can do with this with this thing, but it is also like extremely like having to to work with just one column at once is like looking at a song through like a through a straw. I mean, it also feels like that. What you're describing feels like now you have not just the spreadsheet view, the spreadsheet view of things, which is fairly intuitive. You're also kind of wiring up a modular synth under the hood to <laughs> do the thing you actually want out of like the vague inputs you're gesturing in the direction of the thing. So now it becomes like, okay, like this is now very indirect to edit, right? It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Does this device at least export to a format that you can mess with on a PC with a proper interface if 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 you wanna I have not messed with the export stuff. I'm pretty sure it can export a song like as a wave file and it can mm-hmm. export channels so like it's 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 an eight channel thing so you can export like eight wave files for for your song is is my guess mm-hmm. not having played with that with that stuff i don't think there is a uh like export this to uh, xm mm-hmm. i mean if it's wired up with some like actual like fm sentence i don't see yeah, how it could yeah, because it like yeah, yeah the module formats required to like all be making to samples as well. that's right yeah unless they were just a, like a desktop app of this thing that that read its own native format yeah i mean that's very much a tracker thing though i mean like these days you like sort of expect things to just like surely this can load like the other things like that and that trackers were not like that like every tracker did its own thing it's just like a very regular occurrence that's like okay like you can load like something made in ProTracker and say Fast Tracker. <laughs> it right. can play back something that sort of sounds like the song. It's not the same at all because like everybody's like, oh, like I like vibrato works this way in Fast Tracker and this way in ProTracker. And when you load a mod file in Fast Tracker, it's like, yeah, you can just put the vibrato in there and it exists. It just does something different than the other one does. So I wonder how universal a phenomenon this was. Like in 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 my tracker days, I, I was on the Mac, uh, and the the tracker I was using did not have great import. Like, like you said, it, it worked to import other formats, but it wasn't it wasn't perfect. And yep. I, I didn't find out for like decades later that these songs that I loved and listened to over and over again, like didn't actually sound like that. They didn't have this weird <laughs> yep. artifact at the end of the bar that was just like the tracker failing to import it correctly. Uh, and I wonder, like, was, was that something you got you kind of got used to that like. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I remember this with, like, mod files, Amiga mod files. You had this exact thing where, like, some of them were made on Amiga with ProTracker, some of them were made on a PC with FastTracker. We were similar, but not the same. And so, like, if a musician did it with the one tracker, like, he basically had to match, like, whatever track it was made with to, like, get close to the intent. And then you just, like, it's a mod file, right? It's just, it's the same file format. And, like, I remember, like, I worked on a player for these things, and you looked at the file, 
it's nothing in the header that tells you what it's made with. So you look for like certain bugs that certain of these programs had to identify. Maybe it's one of those. Or some of them had a magic number they put in there. Like, oh, this is a mod file, but it's a fast tracker mod file. So then he had these effects and so on. They all did something different in every single one of these. It's like <laughs> a mod player is not just playing mod. And like, there's no real file format description for these. Because the way all this stuff worked, this is just also like a crazy history thing. It's like ProTracker originally was done by somebody. I don't remember the name. The one version of ProTracker that people actually used was done by somebody else who took the original ProTracker, opened it in a machine code monitor. I was like, let me fix some bugs. Like they didn't have source code or anything. They literally just like started the program, like had an editor, like just poking around in memory to make it do something different, like edit the binary, like put some new code in there. And then somebody else took it and added some new code to that. So there was like multiple versions of this, like even like quote unquote official releases, like not official in the sense that it was sold or anything. But like it was like put on a BBS and everybody was using this version of made by people who had never actually seen the source code and had only ever seen the binary and started editing it in a hex editor to fix bugs or whatever. And like so you not only is there no like authoritative version of like what ProTracker sounds like, there's like three versions of it. Like they change and fix various bugs and all of them sound different. Yeah. And that's that's not even getting into like the programs that like took the mod format and extended it by like now, now it's 16 channels, and the only change is that, like, they changed m.k. to something else Yep. in the file format. <laughs> yep. It was, like, it was a mess, a glorious wow. mess. But then the other thing is, like, okay, like, go, like, people, like, try to describe, like, these days you're assuming, like, surely there's a specification for this. Like, there's no spec. Of course there's no spec. There's a program on Amiga, and, like, I'm yeah. at the time on PC, so, like, I can't run Amiga executables. I have no idea what these work. What do you call it, like, when it's an archaeologist who writes the spec? Is that still a spec? <laughs> I don't know, but that's pretty much what it was. And, like, you had, yeah. like, a friend described it. Like, a lot of it is just lore, right? It's literally oral tradition <laughs> because you have the stuff written up in text files that you got from a BBS or maybe a CD that somebody pulled from, a, like, you had these CDs in the 90s of just somebody goes to like a bunch of BBSs, downloads all the zip files and just burns them on a CD. And like if you were like me and didn't have a modem, that's how you got that stuff. And it was just themed collections of like, oh, programming stuff. And there's like a hundred zip files to do with like trackers because it's just loosely categorized. And then you have text files of unknown sources of dubious quality that describe what the author thinks like this effect in a ProTracker mod file means. And that might be right or that might be wrong. And you just have this collection of lore of like sources of unknown provenance. And like sometimes, sometimes like you would have somebody who actually has the source code or at least a, a annotated disassembly, which at the time is basically as good, right? It's like close <laughs> enough. Uh, these people like that's better than lore because at that point you basically have scripture, right? It's like, it's like the Bible. Like, I mean, this is not like, not necessarily like a correct uh, explanation of things that happened because it might still be a different version of the program, but this is at least codified in a way like, oh, this is at least we know this is close to the truth and this is a more trusted source. And then you end up pouring over disassembly this things like, what is this effect doing? I don't know. It's, just, it's insane. That's how everything used to work. Well, one day along come MP3 files or YouTube and, and you finally hear like, oh, that's what this song was supposed to sound like, like in, in the actual musician's head. Yep. Uh, when, when they export it from their own tracker. Oh, okay. Now now I'll, I'll adjust my expectations accordingly. Yep. 
Uh, the magic is lost forever. Or not. I mean, some of these, it's like, you just look at this thing. Wait, they did what? How does this work? <laughs> it's just, yeah. Like, a lot of mod files, like, if you're playing them, like, especially, like, a lot of, like, really good, like, Amiga 4 channel mods, I said they have this thing where, like, they feel like they have more channels than they ought to be able to. Oh, yeah. And then oh, you yeah. look at this thing scrolling by as it's playing, and it's very dense notation, and, like, this is, like, watching a performance. I mean, it's not the most exciting music video, but, like, you have, like, clearly this was done by somebody who's a virtuoso of this particular tool and who has figured out all the tricks. And you look at this, you see all the stuff scrolling by. You don't fully understand what's going on, but you can tell, like, this was done by somebody who was really good at this and had this really figured out and did crazy stuff and it's just amazing to watch and and you can dig into it if you want to i think that that's yes. the magic that's missing here that like you you had the source code such as it is for the music yes. if you really wanted it that's a thing that's i guess lost if you have like i think this thing that you're describing uh the dirty wave m8 that's like a music like quote-unquote appliance right that's like a thing yeah. you get for your like for your studio it's one of the gadgets you have to just play around that you might put into a song at some point you're actually like you go and noodle around with that, maybe bounce the tracks off and then do it and like finish it in an audio workstation or whatever. You're not actually like using this as your primary tool of composition most like. Whereas like the thing about the tracker is like part of it that makes it really attractive for me is exactly this. Like you get this one file in the end that has all the song in it and that you can not loosely. It's like it's a bit like jazz, right? You have somebody wrote down what this song is. And if you give it to a different player, you're going to get a slightly different performance. Yeah. Uh, it's it's some, a bit improvised in places, and they're not all good. But, like, it's charming, at least. Uh, like, it's it's a bit sad to me when you have something like this, where it's, like, it's not a program you can run. It's just a device that it is the thing. And you can transfer uh, the file over uh, to another of these, but you can't ever do with anything else. And it is what it is. It's yeah, certainly yeah. more useful in a studio setting, but it loses some of the charm and like looseness that this whole tracker scene had. Yeah, there was definitely some a huge advantage to the entire community. You, they were all using just a couple of tools to do all their music, and as a result, there's a lot of interoperability between. Like you can you can download a song and you would just expect to be able to examine it, examine its innards, and nowadays, like. For example, if you're using FL Studio, mm -hmm. you you could totally share your FL Studio source project and other people could load it in FL Studio, but nobody does that because there's no community doing that. And in part because like there are so many different tools you can use. And in fact, there are so many different plugins that you could use. You can download a random VSTI from a website. Yep. The song could require that in order to play back properly. And in fact, like, Music that I wrote, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I, I, even if I have the project file, if I don't have all those plugins, it's just not going to play. And not only do you need the plugins, you need them in the right version too. It's like, oh, right, like, it's yeah. that thing. And like, I can get that again. Like, you need to get the version from like 10 years ago because it might not work anymore. Right. Yeah. Like anything that has like this heavy plugin architecture thing is kind of prone to that. This is also a lot of stuff. Like, I, deal with a lot of this kind of issue at work and yeah it's hard it's just hard yeah and you get something like the m8 which is actually intended at least to be like an all-in-one tool it's got yep. it's got a you know a fairly complete uh feature set 
you could totally share tracker modules between M8 users. And I think some people are doing that, but it's not the norm because yep. so few people have the tool. Yep. I think there are only a few thousand out there. This is totally something. It feels like this is the, you should be able to just run an executable on your PC and and use an Xbox 360 controller, <laughs> which is hilarious. Actually, that's a really funny idea. Now that I <laughs> say it out loud, and then especially like oh, like we we now have the screen real estate to show you four phrases and the like phrase assembler thing at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this with my D-pad instead of using Renoise. It's like oh god. It's like on a D-pad you have dual analog sticks too. <laughs> right. Imagine, like, just imagine what you could do to this interface with a full Xbox controller. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm excited. Are we ready for another topic? <laughs> sure. Uh, for this topic, we're going to be reading and discussing the poem "Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening" by Robert Frost. Would one of you like to read this poem, or shall I? I volunteer. All right. All right. Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods these are? I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep. And miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. I think a lot of poetry, not necessarily, now that, now that I think about it, I'm curious, like, I want to go back over the poems we've done over the course of this podcast uh, and see if this is true of those. But I think a lot of poetry is just like, here is a place or a, a thing that happened to me or a situation, and I'm just going to describe it. And that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a this is a very evocative one of those. Yeah, it's just... Uh... It's sort of like a tableau, right? It's just giving you a lot of atmosphere. And it's not Dory here. It's just like it puts you in the place. Yeah, it's very, it's very pretty. The, the meter is pleasing for sure. So so reading reading it from the site that, that you linked to, Jim, uh, it, it kind of gives away something in that it, it seems to be categorized as 10 famous poems about death. So oh, you... that, that seems a bit of a spoiler. So, okay. So now we're going to talk about interfaces instead of poems uh <laughs> do you think that is like it is in that category or is that like the previous article in this blog i think it's in the category yeah it looks like it because like the yeah, whole like okay. miles to go before i sleep like sleep and death is just such a okay but <laughs> so right. that, that stands that i'm definitely familiar with I, uh, yeah. like I, yes. I didn't remember the rest of the poem but we, 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 we've heard that one and yeah yeah the interpretation was always like i have a lot to do before before I'm done. Yeah. Okay. So I clicked on 10 famous poems about death because it is a hyperlink and this is a list and it's on the list and I still don't see it <laughs> like just because it mentions going to sleep. Hmm. It might also be just one of these things where like the author probably like, yeah, this probably works for death, but also just in general, like it, it, it sleep doesn't have to be death here it can just be like sure. any form of rest like you have you yeah. have something you need to finish and like yeah. certainly like death is always the most dramatic interpretation of this this is part of what threw me off about a lot of poetry the way we did it in school is you sometimes have this very authoritative like you have these really like loose very evocative poems 
And then the way it's discussed in a book was like, here's the motifs, here's what this is talking about, here's the themes. And I don't think poetry works that way. Like, because if I, even if I write something, if I have something very precise, I want to describe, like, this is exactly this. I could write that paragraph. The reason I write it as a poem is because I want it to be about the metaphor and I want to be more about the feeling and like the general concept than about any concrete thing. If what I wanted to express like would fit into like three declarative sentences, then I would just write those sentences. The reason I write something as a poem is because like I have this like feeling this thing I want to express that's just haunting me in my head and I would just want to get it out and cast it into form, but like it's not that precise. Yeah, yeah. To be authoritative, you would need to like well, you'd need to have interviewed the author and gotten their intention. But you would also need to like interview like everybody who's ever read the poem and gotten their interpretation. <laughs> exactly because like this whole like death of the author is kind of overwrought. But like the like it's still important to me to just like what whoever this wrote wants to say versus what this thing did to me can be very very different and like i don't think you want to just completely ignore the author's intent but like certainly like there's like there's definitely cases where like okay like i'm pretty sure the author was going for one thing but i see something completely different in this yeah the thing i'm thinking about is not a poem it's a different thing. There's this is, might be a bit weird reference, but it makes me think of this. There's a Seinfeld bit, not the show, just the comedian, like he did on stage, where he's like, whatever, like he's talking about being in a theater, film, a movie theater, watching a film, and like he just says when he leaves and he is done with his popcorn, like he doesn't clean up because they have people in the theater to clean that shit up. So like if I leave, I just open my hand and drop it on the floor. And he does <laughs> that as a bit. And he just just like, to me, it's just very clear. He says that because he thinks it's like edgy and like kind of funny. And like to me, it just has this thing, which you often have, especially with comedy this person is doing this on stage as a bit, right? And they're sort of exaggerating this, but you can just tell, like, this is something that he does. Because it just feels like, you're being paid to clean up after me, so go ahead, clean up after me. Yeah, no, this guy this guy wouldn't have a job if it weren't for me. Exactly, and it just tells you so much about, like, the person who is actually writing this. And maybe that's part of the bit, but I don't think so. Like, this is just something where I, like, look at this, like, this is, like, deeply revealing something that's kind of, like, nasty and ugly about this person that they totally didn't mean, but, like, it's absolutely there. And, like, it might be just, like, playing, but I just don't, like, it It feels true. And, like, like poetry has a lot of the same thing. Where, like, you just have this interplay, like, yeah, like, there's things, like, to go with the music thing we had before, like, there's chords you're striking, that are very intentional and there's things you do that just felt right to you and you can't articulate why, but somebody who knows you might know exactly what's going through your head and might like be able to express it a lot better than you can. Right. So I, I feel like the last four lines of this poem really kind of stand by themselves and like that could have been the poem and it would probably maintain 90% of the impact for me. Like what, 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 what do you think that the, the, the first, the first three 
I don't know this. I don't know the stanzas, yeah. Those stanzas. Okay. Like, w- w- what are they contributing here? O- other than a- as a transplanted New Englander, making me really homesick. <laughs> what, what are the th- are the first three stanzas really contributing here? Like the the the, the fourth stanza seems to really encapsulate everything that 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 Robert Frost wants to say. Well, here. you think of it as like uh, think of it as like chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, where mm. the last stanza is the cookie dough. And the rest of it is the vanilla ice cream. Okay. You can't great. just eat cookie dough. <laughs> or just like... For some reason, that's not allowed, even though that, that's way better than <laughs> eating totally a cookie. You totally can, though. Or in film terms, like, the first three verses or whatever are the establishing shot, so to say. Like, mm. it's setting the scene. We have the resolution in the end. Like, that's like... like that's obviously the punchline. But, like, it's setting the scene. of like, okay, we have a feeling for, like what kind of woods we're in like it's clearly winter it's darkest evening of the year like there's a lake nearby that's frozen so like it's like okay like there's it's dark there's probably some icy wind somewhere it's like really like okay you're getting the idea of like what this is like and it, it really feels like he wrote the last four lines first though and then and then that, wrote, wrote the, the that might well be the case so according to uh the editor's rating this poem gets 4.4 stars out of five it feels more like a 4.370. This feels very, very dead poet society. How, how yes. many uh, how many of these stars do you think belong to the last stanza? And how many oh, to the oh, first? Most of them. Most yeah. of them. Yeah. I, I would challenge anybody. I don't know. I, I, I certainly agree uh, that you can take like the last verse and like that is a poem by itself. Yeah. The last verse I, I would tattoo onto my skin. The the first part. The first part like adds to it, but like you can't do the first. You can't do the first three verses without the fourth. Do you think this is a case where like he was paid by the line, <laughs> like, like 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 Melville, like I or like, was it Melville or was it was it Dickens? Uh, Dickens, I'm sorry. Yeah, Dickens and like Victor Hugo, I think also like Alexandre Dumas. Like that time, there's just like lots of periodicals, and magazines, like doing like new bit of the story every week kind of thing that used to be how authors get paid i would love to think that he got paid for this uh my gut feeling is that even when robert frost did this it was impossible to get paid for writing writing poetry (laughs) right i i had read that uh alexander dumas was paid by the line and added a character to the three musketeers that spoke very tersely just so that he could have more dialogue that was just one word so like Dumas is an interesting thing because like not only did he do all this like there's also like there's the three musketeers that everybody knows like there's two sequels to that that are not as well known like one is like 20 years later is the name of the book and the other one is literally called another 10 years later <laughs> those, those are the names of the books and the fun thing about um there is there is an author in the US that I don't remember like it's the kind of guy like books that you see at the supermarket like there's these authors who do like 200 books a year which is to say, they don't actually write these books. They're just mostly. I a believe brand. you're thinking of Robert Robert Patterson. Maybe, yeah, or John Patterson, or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, there's these guys, and like Alexandre Dumas was actually one of those. In that, really, he, like he like he was an actual like author for sure, but like he had his workshop with like twenty or thirty people writing for him. <laughs> I did not know that. So like this was like a whole like. Like, think of, like, Warhol factory kind of, like, this was an industrial-scale operation of, like, writing fiction. Like, was he just the producer? Like, he would go look over one writer's shoulder for, like, a page and be like, yeah, that's good, or change this? I don't know. Like, I looked this up, like, 
you look this kind of stuff up and it's always like, oh, it's like an interesting historical footnote. You never know. I can't imagine that an author did this like, is this something that they did for 20 years and was it their main business? Or is this something that they're like, oh, like we're a very popular author and very author and very in demand and they decided need to scale this stuff up and they did it for a year and just completely collapsed on itself? I don't know. But I think he actually did this for a while. So I think it was just like writing for lots of periodicals, like lots of ongoing series. And like basically like, I think like very high level, like he was plotting out these things and coming up with characters and like had other people write the prose is the way I understood it. But I don't know offhand if that's true. This would be a really excellent topic if some future guest wants to do the research. So we, we, we were talking about the last stanza of this poem here. Uh, I, I, I don't think we should we should overlook the fact that the last two lines of the poem are the exact same damn line. And I'm wondering if if Could we he, do he really more? wanted to find a fourth line <laughs> and he just couldn't. And eventually was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to copy paste. <laughs> yeah. I mean, could we do the last three lines the same? Would that be even better? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think like that would do bad things to the rhythm here in this particular case. But okay. maybe we could, try. Right. we could try. Robert Frost would be the one to like the, the expert would be the one you'd want to do that, that surgery. If we were being Robert Frost's editor. Like, which one would you take? Would you keep the woods are lovely, dark and deep? Or would you keep the? But I have promises to keep. Probably the promises <laughs> to keep, right? Yeah, you'd have to take out the butt because there's nothing for it to butt. In this case, you'd probably go like, I have promises to keep miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep, which like doesn't really ring the same way. Yeah. I, I'm now kind of imagining a, a, a postmodern YouTube video where it's like stopping by the woods on a snowy evening, but every single line of the poem is on miles to go before I sleep <laughs> and, and to see how... How 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 distinctly you could read each line, and you could also like go like a lot more modern with this, and like E coming mm. says up, so like you could do like <laughs> I have promises to keep, and then just like do the miles to go before I sleep, just that without them, without the and without any punctuation, and spread it across eight lines, like each like indented differently. You could go there, like actually, like if you turn into just just these four lines do that kind of thing i think you could very very easy coming this up i think that's all the time we have for topic lords <laughs> oh really <laughs> i'm loving this works workshopping robert frost poetry you should be on the show again someday okay because i would love to talk about ceramic clown statues let me tell you that, <laughs> that was one thing i was really curious about i mean like everybody is now confused because they can't see the topic list yeah yeah, no. Just I'm... just as a teaser, though, like the topic says, novel uses for hundreds of surplus uh, ceramic clown statues. And it's like, novel uses? Like, which use was there to begin with? This sounds purely decorative to me. But we will never know. Or maybe we will in the future. Maybe we will. Yeah, that's something to look forward to when the next episode court is on. I have to have him back. See, see what I did there? Job security. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if, if only we were getting paid for this. We're not? Oh, man. I'm out. <laughs> Jim's getting paid for this. There, there's a Patreon. It's too late. I've got your... Yeah, but all that money goes to the editor. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to be fair, like, it looks like the editor is going to do the hard work, so there's that. That's right. They're the ones doing the, the, grunt, the grunt work. We just get to have a fun conversation. Try to keep their eyes open. Like, we're doing the fun hand-waving, and like the guy who actually has to... like edit this into like coherent prose at the end much like the writers and andrew demas's factory <laughs> yeah it's it's a thankless job but somebody has to do it thanks esper <laughs> uh fabian if this is something that you want where can people find you on the internet you can just 
Google my name and find me. And like, I'm on Twitter, like rigorous, but written with a Y. But also, like, that's mainly like random text stuff and or bad puns. Preferably both at the same time, honestly. Cool. Uh, and Court, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I also have a fairly unique name. You can just Google me. Uh, I am I am post-goodism pretty much everywhere that I can be. Uh, if you find a post-goodism, it is almost certainly me or it is somebody infringing upon my officially registered trademark and they will hear from my lawyer. No, That sounds menacing. I'm making a note here. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on Topic Lords. Thanks for having so me. So do, 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 do we now get like... Topic vassals that we can tax is that part of the is that part of the package deal? Oh, you gotta you gotta source those on your own. I'm sorry. Is, is there a whole topic peerage hierarchy that we should study up on? Is there at least like maybe a badge or like membership in some knightly order or something? Uh, for several months, I sent trophies to the <laughs> to all the lords, <laughs> like actual physical trophies. Yeah, that sounds exhausting. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I stopped doing it, not because of the cost, because the trophies were incredibly cheap, but because I got really sick of, like, going to the order form and typing in all the addresses. <laughs> and, like, for some reason, when I suggested that people buy themselves the trophies, they didn't want to do that. <laughs> I I have a solution to you, but it once again ties back into... Uh, Hundreds of surplus ceramic clowns. Down there. Wait on that. <laughs> All right, but but we can't talk about that now. Maybe that's what you that's, do on Black Square Day. That's right. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!